Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. gentlemen for coming out today. Uh, Colin, uh, as did you, uh, let me acknowledge uh, the First Nations people of uh, the Canberra region, the Ngunnawal Nambri people, and note that here Cambry, they have been meeting for millennia, and indeed where we are meeting is effectively where people have been meeting for thousands of years, uh, and where Canberra gets its name from, Cambry. So uh, the Meet the Author series uh, has been sort of a missing part of uh, the ANU landscape, uh, largely for the last year due to COVID, and it seems to me that it was about a year ago, Ross, that we had you here last year. So uh, I think you are uh, competing with Andrew Lee in terms of economics texts per, uh, per year, uh, although as you noted, you've been doing it for about 50 years longer than him, so uh, you're well out in front still. Uh, it, uh, the program here to me, to my mind, is uh, truly one of the best programs that I've seen anywhere in the world. It really does bring what's happening uh, in Australia on a regular basis, and it's, uh, it's great to have uh, you, Colin, uh, putting it together. Uh, and as I said, it, it is something that I think really is a great thing for us Canberrans to, to have, and I wish we could share it maybe a li little bit more with the rest of the nation. Maybe uh, Zoom doesn't quite cut it, I'm afraid. Uh, so, uh, today we have, uh, as I mentioned, Professor Ross Garneau and Dr. Stephen Kennedy uh, to talk about, uh, I guess, uh, what has been an amazing year. Uh, and, you know, we've all had time to work on things in the last year in ways we didn't expect. The road ahead looks problematic as we continue to cover from the global crisis and as a nation. We are resilient, and I think we've proven that we are adaptable and we're able to move forward in these times of uncertainty. Uh, Australia has played a pivotal role in helping its region around the world, uh, and I think we all agree that we do need to continue to work together uh, and ensure that Australia's future prosperity is equal to the past prosperity that, quite frankly, we've all gotten quite used to. Professor Ross Garneau is a professorial, a professorial research fellow uh, in economics at the University of Melbourne, having been an iconic professor for many decades here at ANU. Uh, he is an ANU alumnus and indeed rather remarkable uh, Peter Drysdale's PhD supervisor is out here in the audience. Uh, and uh, that is one of the great things uh, about this community. Uh, he was a professor of economics from 1989 to 2008 and continued to teach as distinguished professor uh, through until 2013. In 2008, Ross produced the Garneau Climate Change Review for the Australian government, uh, and clearly that is uh, an important report that continues to resonate throughout uh, the nation. Uh, he's also the author of many other books, including the best-selling Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity, which was the last time we met, and uh, that was, uh, uh, I think, a really important 
blueprint for the future still, and a future not unfortunately yet realized, but coming up and creeping up, I think, more and more quickly. It, only, it not only highlights the need to act on climate change, but the incredible opportunity Australia has to once again be the lucky country. We have been endowed with resources renewable almost to the same extent of non-renewable. And what an amazing, lucky country we are. Let's just hope we take advantage of that. Leadership on climate change is something we are strongly committed to at ANU. Uh, to my mind, just that as a symptom of global sustainability is the big existential crisis of humanity. And we're stepping up through our Below Zero initiative, where we hope to show that it's okay to be zero by 2050, but actually we can be below zero as institutions like universities well before that time. And by leading the way in the research and just the sheer will of getting out and doing it, we hope to show the rest of the country and the rest of the world how to do it. Professor Garneau can always be relied on for strong analysis, sensible recommendations, and I have been told that his ideas presented in Reset are, of course, uh, in that vein. Uh, we are also joined uh, this evening by Dr. Stephen Kennedy, the Secretary of the Australian Treasury. Prior to his appointment as Treasury Secretary in 2019, uh, Dr. Kennedy was Secretary of the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Cities, and Regional Development. And in his over 30 years in public service, uh, Dr. Kennedy has held many other uh, senior positions, uh, including Deputy Secretary of uh, PMNC, uh, Department of Industry, Innovation, Science, Department of Environment, uh, and he also served as Deputy Secretary at the Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency, uh, at which time he was the head of the Secretariat of the Garneau Climate Change Review. Uh, so he is a very informed uh, uh, person to take uh, this conversation on tonight. Uh, he is also a secretary, and I would say playing on the edge uh, uh, being here tonight, and I have told Ross that at the end of tonight's conversation, I would like Dr. Kennedy to still be Secretary of the Treasury <laughs> and not just uh, ANU alumnus extraordinaire. So uh, with that, uh, noting that uh, uh, Stephen has a PhD in and Master's in Economics from ANU, it is great to welcome both of you back. Uh, I'm gonna pop out at just at the, when questions start, uh, but I really look forward to tonight's conversation as always. Over to you. Thank, thank you, Brian, for that introduction. And uh, look, I'd like to begin by also joining your acknowledgement of the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Um, Ross, it's fantastic uh, to be here having a conversation with you. Um, uh, we had so much fun during the update uh, back in 2010. I, I, I learned a huge amount from Ross through that period and, and am continuing to learn uh, through your books. I had the great advantage of being able to read Ross's uh, book over the weekend. Uh, spending some time down the south coast and uh, and I can confidently say to all of you I really recommend it. Ross is drawing together a number of threads uh, through dog days and through superpower and bringing them together um, very powerfully but not everyone has had the advantage I suppose Ross of reading the book so I thought perhaps we might just go through a few of the the themes uh, that I saw in the book some of your reflections and then and then we'll go to some um, uh, to some questions. Uh, one of the things you do in the book is, is very carefully evaluate not only Australia's response to the pandemic, but a number of other countries. And, um, and, ve and, 
and very interestingly, not just from an economic perspective or just the health system, but also uh, how they operate, either as democracies or not as democracies, and what you think that means for the future. And uh, before we get into the, to the looking forward, where I have to um, pick up on Brian's comment, you remain one of the most optimistic people I've met. You've got a, a, a number of great opportunities that you outline for Australia. But before we get to that, I think we'd be really interested in hearing about your assessment of countries' responses, how their systems worked, and, uh, and maybe a couple of reflections on the, on the role of experts in responses. Thanks, Stephen, and uh, great to be with you. Yes, we did have a lot of fun in those days and uh, uh, kicked a few goals, even if uh, a, a, an umpire retrospectively scrubbed a few of them. But, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, thanks, Brian, for, for the introduction. Um, the, the, the pandemic uh, came suddenly uh, on, the, on the world and uh, made very great demands, uh, uh, country by country, on, uh, on the quality of their uh, medical systems and political systems. And some countries managed and some didn't. Uh, 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 going through uh, the experience of different countries, uh, the countries in our Western Pacific region did relatively well. Uh, the good performers of the world, uh, uh, Taiwan right at the, uh, at the top, uh, but very good performance uh, from uh, Korea, uh, China, um, uh, uh, Japan, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, New Zealand and Australia. Uh, the developed countries in the rest of the world uh, did pretty poorly. Uh, the UK, uh, continental Europe, uh, uh, the US and Canada Perhaps uh, unfortunately, and perhaps unfortunately, like Germany, because it had a lot of countries, or it had a country near it that uh, wasn't doing well. And when you've got very long borders uh, with lots of people moving backwards and forwards, then it uh, drags you down. Uh, um, in my review of the experience, I draw the conclusion that uh, one very important uh, variable that determined outcomes was uh, how seriously uh, leaders took science, took scientific knowledge. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the countries did, did, that did best uh, all took knowledge very seriously. Uh, and the countries that didn't uh, did very badly. Uh, the, the, unfortunately, the US, the UK uh, stand out uh, for uh, both initially not taking knowledge seriously. Later on, the, US, the UK tried to correct uh, but uh, the, the COVID was already deeply entrenched in the UK by that time, and it's much harder to recover uh, after you've let it go than uh, to, to get in at the beginning. Um, I talk about uh, uh, the role of, of uh, populism uh, in uh, undermining respect for knowledge uh, in the democracies. Uh, talk about uh, uh, the, uh, the way that... Uh, 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 disrespect for knowledge uh, and uh, cultivation of, of ignorance, ignorance if it suits a political purpose uh, became more and more important in the 21st century uh, in the developed democracies, especially uh, in the US and the UK. We've had some tendencies towards that in Australia, uh, but in this big test, uh, we, we resisted those uh, tendencies and so became one of the better performers, one of the the countries of the Western Pacific uh, that, that did better. 
uh, on, on economic response, well, that was first of all, economic outcomes were first of all determined by uh, uh, the uh, effects of the pandemic itself and the effectiveness of governments in uh, dealing with the pandemic. Initially, there was a lot of debate uh, about the uh, supposed trade-off between dealing with the health issue and uh, uh, restricting economic activity. Uh, uh, there were a few people in that debate uh, who genuinely believed that uh, there was a trade-off and you'd get better economic outcomes if you did, weren't, didn't, weren't so strong on uh, dealing with the, uh, the health issues. Experience showed uh, that uh, there was no trade-off. The countries that did best on dealing with the pandemic uh, ended up doing best economically. And that was apparent even in the first half of the year. I've got one chart uh, uh, that plots uh, uh, um, deaths per million uh, against uh, a decline in GDP. And the, the, the it's not a strong correlation in the first half of the year, but there was a tendency even then for the countries that had had less health impact to do better economically, and Australia does uh, pretty well uh, on both scores. Uh, now, as, the, as time has gone on, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the relationship between dealing effectively with the pandemic and getting better and earlier strong economic outcomes uh, becomes even more powerful. Now, use the example of Scandinavia, where uh, we've almost got a laboratory case of uh, Sweden quite explicitly uh, 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 choosing not to be restrictive in policy while its Scandinavian neighbours took a different approach. Uh, uh, at the time, there was heated argument in all of the Scandinavian countries about what was the better way to go. Well, there was no argument by the end of the year and the, the king of Sweden, I quote him in, in the book, uh, at the end of the year makes a, uh, a very rare statement on policy by the king as uh, apologising for uh, the, the government, his government uh, getting it wrong and letting down the people of Sweden by uh, not dealing with the, uh, the, the pandemic earlier. So that issue is settled. Um, uh, amongst the, uh, the, the countries that did well, uh, there's not a general relationship between type of government, authoritarian or democratic, uh, uh, and uh, and outcomes the successful countries include some with uh, uh, liberal democratic political systems including New Zealand uh, Australia Japan Korea Taiwan some with authoritarian political systems uh, China um, uh, Vietnam Ethiopia uh, so uh, that's not a point of distinction uh, I think that there are other reasons why uh, over time uh, democracies that work effectively will uh, will, will do better. Uh, but uh, on this issue at this time, uh, type of political system does not determine political outcomes. Uh, some of the worst performers uh, were democracies in which populism had become dominant and respect for knowledge had uh, diminished. Um, I say uh, in the chapter on knowledge in the book that uh, I'm hopeful that uh, the increased respect that uh, knowledge has gained through uh, management of the pandemic will, will spill from health over into other areas, including uh, economic policy and the environment. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Ross. That chart that you mentioned is a cracking good chart in the, in the book. I think it really draws out even in countries like Sweden in the US, which haven't suffered as much economically as, um, uh, as some of the European countries, 
They have very much suffered from cases and deaths and their economic outcomes are certainly no better than Australia's. So it shows that, uh, that it, countries that acted early, um, uh, I I've, I've saw really three groups of countries there, countries that minimise the economic costs like we did in New Zealand and other countries, some that in some ways because of dysfunction in their system chose not to, but they still suffered economically but suffered, of course, enormously for their population. And then, of course, very sadly, countries that suffered very badly on both fronts, and that would include some of the European countries that had very large economic declines and, and, and very poor health outcomes. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Stephen, of huge importance for Australia, of course, is uh, what happened in the developing world. I didn't mention that in my summary. And uh, uh, the story there is generally a, a, a very sad one. Uh, because even uh, governments that took science seriously often didn't have the public health capacities to, to, to implement the policies they would like to implement. Uh, uh, and so uh, uh, this is a very big setback for uh, the developing countries, even many that were doing reasonably well in development through the, the uh, 21st century. And it's a major challenge for the developed countries now, for the international community, to uh, help those uh, uh, developing countries that have been damaged very badly, including very big ones like, like India, uh, to uh, get back onto uh, uh, an economic development path. Ross, you, you talk in the uh, book quite a lot about um, how the globe has responded to past crises and, um, and to move more um, are looking forward at the opportunities that might arise. How opportunity has arisen um, in response to these crises, possibly because of increased trust in systems, um, but also because governments have seized the opportunity to take on reforms, um, not always um, uh, all at the same time. Um, and that's something I, I'd be really interested in hearing from you from because you, you outline a number of very significant reforms in your book, but you also understand having sat very closely to a prime minister, the difficulty in, in boiling the ocean, so to speak. Uh, maybe just a few reflections on uh, what history has taught us as we come out of these types of crises, how to seize these opportunities. Um, we'll talk in a little bit about some of those specific opportunities, but how also to bring a program together, how, how to capture the public's imagination for a, a program that will run hopefully over decades to follow. Uh, well, I mentioned in the book, in fact, it's a bit of a theme of the book, uh, that in the 120 years of our federation, there have been five periods where we, we've faced, had to face up to very deep economic problems. And uh, uh, I, my assessment is that on two and a half occasions, we dealt with them well. Uh, and two and a half occasions, we failed to face up to them. Well, the half is the Great Depression, uh, where uh, we did much better in, in uh, reducing unemployment, coming out of it relatively early than the UK or the US. But when you look at everything in retrospect, we could have done better still. So I count that for half. Uh, the, the two successful cases were uh, uh, post-war reconstruction. It, it was reasonable for... Australians in 1945 to think that they faced a very difficult uh, future uh, with uh, demobilisation of huge numbers of people in the armed forces. Uh, a huge part of the Australian population uh, had been uh, diverted from other activities into uh, wartime production. Uh, and we, we had to uh, 
uh, find civilian employment for uh, all of those people. We come out of the, uh, the Great Depression uh, and the experience of after the First World War was a miserable one. Uh, persistent uh, uh, unemployment and stagnation, a very difficult period uh, for, for our country. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the, the wartime governments, um, uh, uh, Curtin and uh, Chifley, uh, set about planning post-war reconstruction when the war was still going on. Uh, a couple of the great names around this university uh, uh, were the key figures in the Department of Post-War Reconstruction, uh, Nugget Coombs as head of the department, and uh, John Crawford as uh, 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 director of research uh, in the Department of Post-War Reconstruction. And uh, uh, the, the government was thinking about uh, how they could make sure, first of all, that uh, we didn't repeat the miseries after the First World War, but secondly, uh, how we could build a, a future uh, for, for Australians that uh, was worth the sacrifice that uh, many Australians had had to make uh, in, in war and before that in, uh, uh, in depression. Uh, and the, the, uh, the third uh, uh, occasion of, of success, one of the two uh, unambiguous successes, was uh, uh, the period of reform, for, which uh, was at its height, 83 to 91, but continued through the 90s, uh, where uh, Australia dealt with uh, an accumulation of underperformance. Uh, from, uh, from 74 until 83, we had persistent economic instability and stagnation, persistent high unemployment, high inflation, uh, low pro productivity growth, uh, uh, worse performance than uh, many other OECD countries, although it wasn't a great period uh, for the world as a whole. And uh, uh, the, the government elected in 83 uh, uh, faced up to those issues, embarked on a comprehensive reform program. Well, the outcome uh, from the uh, uh, post-war reconstruction effort was a quarter century of sus sustained economic growth, uh, uh, mostly uh, what we can properly call full employment, unemployment 2% and less, often an average of about 1.5%, steadily rising incomes of ordinary people uh, right through that time. Uh, quite strong population growth and uh, uh, changes in the uh, composition of our population, a huge uh, uh, gearing up of uh, the intellectual capacity of the country, a uh, huge expansion of the universities of uh, uh, secondary uh, uh, education. Uh, so that's pretty unambiguously uh, a, a successful response to difficulty. And similarly, after the uh, 83 uh, uh, to uh, uh, the reforms from 83 to the, the end of the century, uh, most dramatic early on, but uh, continuing really through to the end of the century, um, the, the outcome of that was in the 90s, uh, the, uh, uh, Australia for the first time in the, in the 20th century led the developed countries in productivity growth. We, we were, after the recession of 1991, uh, we had the highest productivity growth through the 90s in, in the OECD. And that was unusual for Australia. For most of the 20th century, we were right down the bottom. Uh, we, we started the century with the highest uh, per capita incomes uh, and the highest uh, uh, incomes of ordinary people in the world, uh, about 40% higher per capita income uh, than the US or the UK. We ended, well, uh, uh, by uh, the, the 80s, uh, we were well below uh, the, the average of the developed countries. And you only 
uh, slipped back by that with uh, much lower productivity growth than the rest of the world. Well, for, through the 90s, we were top of uh, uh, the productivity period. The other marker of success from that reform period was uh, 28 years of unbroken economic growth, a longer period of growth uh, unbroken by recession uh, in, the, uh, in the history of developed countries. A remarkable period. But, but in the book, I uh, go through those periods and show it wasn't all equal. The, the first decade was the productivity boom. The second decade, incomes kept rising, but, but uh, almost entirely in one way or another from the China resources boom, which improved our terms of trade and created opportunities for productive uh, investment. And, and uh, since uh, 2013, uh, when, when the China resources boom ended, partly because of a change in the structure of economic growth in China, uh, we, uh, uh, we continued with economic growth. We didn't have a recession, but uh, uh, per capita uh, uh, output growth stopped uh, uh, very low during that period, lower than the average of developed countries, much lower than the US, lower even than Japan. and. Uh, uh, wrongly, I think, but many Australians think of Japan as a bit of a basket case, and certainly in terms of economic growth, uh, a poor performer. Well, uh, uh, we were the developed country that didn't do as well as Japan in what I call the dog days from 2013 to 2019. But overall, you'd say that that 28 years uh, was a, a successful a long period following the reforms. I contrast those two and a half successful responses with... Uh, uh, the two periods of failing to deal with with uh, 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 problems that left us vulnerable and that uh, pushed problems on to uh, future governments. Uh, left us very vulnerable if future governments didn't do very much more than the, the governments at the time did. And these were the 20s uh, where we were starting to slide into a depression before the Great Depression uh, brought out in... Uh, uh, Shan's uh, great book, uh, The Boom of uh, 1889 and Now, uh, published in 27, uh, uh, saying that we were getting ourselves in deep strife before the Great Depression hit. And the second period was was uh, 74 to 83, where we failed to, to, to deal with the problems, push the problems into the future, left our country very vulnerable. Well, what were the common features of the successful uh, periods? Uh, I uh, put a strong emphasis on uh, respect for knowledge, economic knowledge, uh, 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 being open to uh, uh, ideas, uh, open, open to information, uh, and uh, uh, knowledge of, um, uh, of experts advising governments is critical, and Australia had a good record in the successful times, including the 30s, uh, of innovation in, uh, from economists in thinking about uh, policy, putting ideas forward. Then you needed uh, political leaders who were receptive to it. You needed political leaders uh, able to, to explain to the community the, the need and the, uh, 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 and the importance of, uh, uh, of, of structural change, of changing economic policy if we were to get uh, good outcomes. It's also a common feature of the successful period that wasn't present in the unsuccessful ones, that there was quite a strong emphasis on equity. Uh, 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 economic reform always involves some losers. It's hard for uh, some people, and uh, uh, those people will resist and uh, get sympathy for resistance. Uh, unless there's a broadly shared understanding in the community that what's being done is good for the country as a whole, but, but also uh, uh, 
distributes the benefits of successful reform fairly. That was a feature of uh, the, the 30s response to recession, uh, even under the Conservative government of Lyons. Uh, and uh, it was a feature of uh, post-war reconstruction. It was a feature of uh, the reforms of the 80s and 90s. Thank, thank you, Ross. I think um, in, uh, fairness and employment, it's, when you go back and read some of the papers in the pamphlets from the mid-40s, some of the planning and the white paper on full employment, they are so focused on solving that terrible problem that they had around unemployment in the Great Depression. And um, I think it's a, it's a lingering policy unifier today, really, and, and so it should be. It's, it's so powerful to, um, to, to have good employment outcomes and then, and then of course, reasonable, outcome, reasonable outcomes uh, and, and inequality um, uh, at levels that the community is comfortable and, and, um, uh, and, and will accept. I want to move, we've got, we're going to run out of time before we take a couple of questions. I want to give you a bit of time to talk about a, a few of your new ideas, but I, I just have one quick question I want to put to you before we get to that. And it goes to this issue of experts. You talked a little bit about also decision making, uh, well, quite a bit actually, uh, under quite extreme uncertainty and how experts work with um, elected officials in, in that environment and, and how, to, how to communicate in that issue. And of course, you thought very deeply about it in your climate change um, reviews. Maybe just a couple of quick remarks before we hear from a couple of your, your ideas in the book about opportunities for Australia, about your reflections on uh, how, how we engage a community when, um, when really we're taking decisions with quite a significant amount of uncertainty surrounding them. Yes, uh, and certainly this one uh, involved a lot of decisions under uncertainty and uh, it's one of the reasons uh, why I, I'm so positive about uh, the, the Australian economic policy response in the early period of this, this recession. You, Stephen, and uh, your minister and people working with you uh, were working under about as extreme uncertainty uh, as you can get. Um, but uh, uh, the reality of uh, policy making is that a lot of the very big decisions have to be made when, when, they're, 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 when the circumstances really are circumstances of radical uncertainty. Uh, the, the great uh, uh, 20th century economist John Maynard Keynes began his, his academic work as a philosopher. His first uh, uh, public or first major piece of work was uh, his treatise on probability in which he distinguished between risk and uncertainty. Risk, you can calculate the odds of various possible outcomes. Uncertainty, you actually don't know the uh, universe in which you're, you're operating. And uh, in that world, um, uh, and probably especially in a democratic polity, uh, there, there's uh, a certain appeal uh, for a, a, a populist leader to assert certainty uh, when there's no basis for it. This is a real challenge for a, a, a democratic leader in times of radical un uncertainty. Uh, and uh, good policy making has to recognise uh, that uh, we really don't, we don't know the probability distribution of outcomes. Uh, we, we don't know the precise results. And in these circumstances, we have to treat knowledge with even more respect. We have to use every bit we've got because we need every help that we can. And we, we, we have to be ready to uh, reshape our 
uh, our view of uh, the policies that will work as as information uh, reveals itself. And we have to be very alert to every new bit of information uh, that we can. Uh, and uh, the, the really great leaders in those circumstances acknowledge the uncertainty because leadership comes, comes undone if you assert certain outcomes and then uh, the reality unfolds in a different way. Uh, but uh, the, the democratic leader has to also uh, carry the community. And so, uh, and the community wants uh, uh, some confidence that uh, the leadership knows where, where it's going. So in the immediate uh, impact of uh, uh, extreme uncertainty, there's some advantage in a, for a populist leader in just being able to assert that something is true whether or not it is. But uh, the passing of time uh, reality revealing itself uh, can undermine uh, the, the, the populace and uh, all the long-term advantages for policy uh, are on the side of, uh, of leaders who uh, can uh, uh, re respond to the reality of uh, uncertainty by uh, using all the knowledge available uh, making it clear that there, there that there is uncertainty, but uh, generating confidence that uh, uh, we're adopting the best possible strategy. And I think we did a good job of that in the, as the extreme uh, uncertainty of the the pandemic uh, uh, crashed over us uh, in the early months of uh, 2020. There's so much to talk about, Ross, and we don't have a, lo a lot time uh, a lot of time and. Um, I, I was wondering if you could give the audience um, maybe a, a few hooks or sweeteners for the many policy ideas that you're bringing forward. Uh, many go to uh, the discussion you talked about in dog days around declining competitiveness in Australia and how to address that, both on the uh, corporate tax side, also the issue you raised around equity. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot. Uh, and then, of course, returning to the themes that are in superpower, Maybe uh, just to give us a taste of um, a couple of those ideas um, quickly that are new in this that are new in this book, of course, or in the lectures that you gave that underpin the book, but uh, that, were, that were new in this one. Well, I reproduced in the book a, a diagram that all, all of us undergraduates at ANU in in, in the in the early sixties. Uh, had rammed into us the, the Swan diagram at a time when. Uh, uh, that, that had never been published. So academic days were different in those days. Trevor wrote this uh, marvellous paper, put it in his drawer, and nine years later, uh, a few of his colleagues dragged it out of the drawer and published it in a book of, uh, uh, of papers. But uh, uh, it's an old Australian idea uh, that, uh, uh, that, that uh, successful uh, uh, macroeconomic uh, management, avoidance of instability, uh, uh, has to have clearly in mind two objectives, not just one, full employment, but also uh, a manageable level of, of, of debt. Early, there used to be focus on external debt, and I think that still is appropriate. Uh, and uh, uh, there are two main uh, instruments uh, for, for dealing with it. One is the level of domestic expenditure, uh, and the other is uh, uh, the level of competitiveness of the, of the economy. Uh, you, you can move to full employment just by spending more money. Uh, and in the short term, there's no constraint on that. If, Trevor, uh, if uh, uh, Stephen and his minister uh, uh, double uh, public expenditure in, in the next budget, then we will have full employment uh, 
a few months after that, that's the way it works. Uh, uh, that, uh, uh, Trump proves that, proved that works with a huge tax cut uh, uh, funded entirely from debt. Uh, it, it works, but, the, but there are consequences. You, you, um, the, the other way you can increase employment by is improve competitiveness. Uh, investment and activity in the trade-exposed industries. And you have to get the... If you want growth to be sustainable, if you want full employment to be sustainable, you've got to get a balance between the two. Well, that's an old economic idea that I think we've tended to forget a little bit, and so I put a lot of emphasis on that. Uh, how do you do that? Uh, well, you, it's the balance of fiscal and monetary policy that's the main determinant of competitiveness, and uh, uh, I, I point out in the book that uh, we didn't have that balance right. Uh, in the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, in the dog days from 2013 to 2019, we we ran much tighter monetary policy than the rest of the world, rest of the developed world. Even when our economy wasn't as strong uh, as many places in the rest of the world, that had its main effect on the economy through the exchange rate and competitiveness, uh, and uh, uh, um, uh, and that forced us really to rely on uh, more domestic demand expansion if we were going to reach uh, full employment. But unfortunately, we also had restrictive uh, fiscal policy. The fiscal policy, I think, uh, might have been right if the monetary policy had been right, but the combination was wrong. So there's quite a lot in the book about the balance of uh, uh, monetary and fiscal expansion that gives you sustainable full employment and sustainable growth. Uh, and. Uh, I use a cricket analogy in this book that I used to use in lots of discussions in the uh, 80s. There's some balls that uh, you're, you're bowled that, uh, from which you can uh, uh, score a six uh, over the fence. And if you take every chance to hit them, you break up the field and make it possible to get a lot of singles and doubles. And uh, uh, I, I say the sixes uh, that are uh, getting fiscal and monetary policy right. And I say uh, fiscal policy's broadly been right so far, a big question about what happens next, and we'll learn that as history unfolds. Monetary policy was very wrong, uh, it's, uh, and uh, since I have finished the book, it's got more right, it's been heading in the right direction. I don't know if the RBA uh, had, had some uh, young uh, research staff listening to my Barcourton lectures, but, uh, 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 but they, uh, and the governor of the bank early this month made a statements that shifted uh, um, policy further in the direction I like. I don't think it's quite quite there yet. The other sixes that I said are waiting to be hit, uh, one are a form of corporate uh, income tax, a shift from the uh, accounting basis of uh, corporate income tax to uh, a cash flow tax. Uh, it would take more time than we've got to explain it and, uh, uh, and Probably Ian would prefer to uh, study it in the book rather than to hear it, so uh, uh, I won't go through the details now, but the effects of the shift would be to uh, shift the tax burden away from companies that are investing, away from companies that are innovating, taking risks, away from new companies, uh, away from uh, smaller companies, and shift the tax burden towards companies that are not investing, but are uh, sitting on their laurels, <coughs> not innovating, not taking risks, and uh, relying on established uh, patterns of growth. So I think that's a very important reform. Been working on it, uh, talking it over with colleagues for a few years. Uh, and so uh, I, I think I've thought through enough, uh, Steve, to uh, unambiguously recommend it. Uh, uh, and. Uh, 
the other six, I think, is an integration of tax on social security uh, uh, around the idea of a negative income tax or a basic minimum income. Uh, uh, the the uh, writer, the political system, likes to think of a negative income tax. That's, that, that was the term uh, used by Milton Friedman uh, in the 60s when he pushed it. Uh, those who uh, favour uh, more equitable outcomes than the market economy is going to generate like to call it a minimum basic income, but we're actually talking about the same phenomenon. Uh, it doesn't have a political colour. Um, it leads to uh, uh, much stronger incentives for labour force participation. It will have the effect of supplementing uh, incomes of low-income workers and part-time casual and other workers who have been very severely damaged uh, by the pandemic recession and by the dog days uh, labour market before that. So uh, they're, they're the sixes. Lots of singles. I'm all, and uh, any century includes a, a lot of singles. So, but but I spend most of the time on the sixes. Thank you, Ross. It wouldn't be an Australian book without a cricket analogy in it, I don't think. Um, Ross also talks about Adam Gilchrist and Justin Langer's famous run chase in, uh, in, in Hobart. But well, we won't go into that because I think we need to leave some time for people to ask some uh, questions. Uh, the, those last couple of ideas that Ross talked about um, are, bi are big ideas, are, are really large and uh, very significant reforms. But I... I, um, I have actually had to do qu uh, que question and answers for you in the past, Ross. I think back when we did the review and I found that you took over almost immediately. But in this forum, you can't <laughs> we have to ask people to come down the front. So is there anyone who would like to come down, the, uh, perhaps the gentleman just here and ask Ross a quick question and then and hopefully Ross will have a chance to get through a few of them. Yeah, you, you mentioned respect for knowledge, and uh, I wonder if you could clarify, in relation to uh, climate change, in relation to global warming, we have a dearth of expertise. We're going back a couple of hundred years warning that the climate was, was altering, right, you know? And we had all this, this expertise and knowledge, right, you know, which was totally ignored and resisted, in fact, right? you know, despite the fact that we had proof and we have costs and we have the evidence in front of our eyes. And suddenly, as you mentioned, when COVID strikes, without any evidence that there's anything there, that there's a perceivable threat, on the basis of theory alone, we get immediate dramatic action from the, uh, from the politicians. So where does the difference lie? Why are we getting such divergent results from two threats which are actually presenting plays? I think the COVID threat was more immediate. People were dying. Uh, I got a, got a message from uh, one of our uh, sometime ANU uh, colleagues uh, uh, who's now at Oxford today about his mother-in-law who just died of COVID together with five of her close associates. Uh, uh, death. Uh, concentrates the mind, uh, and uh, the the, uh, the effects of climate change are 
Insidious, uh, they creep up on you, uh, they're gradual effects. I think that is quite a big difference in determining political response. Now, morally, uh, the, the, the issues are very much the same. Uh, uh, John Broome, professor of ethics at Oxford, wrote a very nice little book on the ethics of climate change. And he, can, he said that uh, a lot of people think that because the, the effects of our uh, uh, emitting greenhouse gases, uh, the damage it does to other people, are distant in time and in place. It just does just as much damage on the other side of the world as it does here. We don't know who's affected and uh, the worst damage will be in, to people in future. Uh, so uh, that, that, uh, some people uh, feel let off the moral hook uh, by that distance. And he points out that that's very much the same as uh, shooting uh, a rifle into a distant crowd. You, you, you're quite certain to be doing great damage. You don't know uh, who and how uh, they will be damaged. Uh, uh, I think that we've become much better at uh, understanding the, the ethics of climate change uh, since uh, uh, since I did my first report and then my second report with Stephen, uh, uh, the uh, 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 and I, I think the, the classic uh, treatment of the ethics of climate change is uh, uh, Pope Francis's uh, Laudato Si, uh, based on authoritative use of physics. Uh, he had the best physicists in uh, in in uh, Europe advising him, but but then uh, applying. Uh, uh, widely accepted uh, uh, ethical principles, uh, both Christian but also non-Christian and religious and secular ethical principles. And uh, all of these led very clearly to the need uh, for strong action. But, but because the effects are so long-term, uh, 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 are not uh, confined to nearby places, it took humanity a while to, to, to come to grips with the ethics of it. So that's one difference. There's another difference, and that's the role of vested interests. In this one, uh, we have an economy and a political system that's been built around uh, uh, fossil energy. Uh, when we started to uh, deal with climate change a dozen years ago in, in uh, many countries, uh, uh, the, uh, the fossil energy companies, uh, petroleum, coal, uh, gas, were amongst the most the wealthiest and uh, most powerful com companies in many countries. They were used to exercising political influence. They were monopolies, uh, which have a big advantage in exercising political influence, and especially democratic political systems were vulnerable to that, at least those that hadn't built systemic uh, protections uh, against that influence. So that was another complication. But I, I think... Uh, uh, Stephen accused me uh, recently, just now, of uh, being optimistic. But uh, uh, I genuinely think that uh, the waves are breaking uh, over the heads of uh, those who are denying climate change now. And uh, I, I think that the uh, uh, election of Biden and the, and the uh, uh, Democrat majority in the Senate uh, really is of historic importance. Uh, the US now joins uh, the UK, uh, European Union, all the other developed countries of Europe, Japan, Korea, Canada, New Zealand, uh, and China, uh, with commitments to zero emissions by the middle of the century. That creates a very different situation. It's only Australia at a, f a federal level that uh, uh, it stands outside that now. Uh, that 
creates a very different uh, framework uh, for making progress on this issue. And even in Australia, all states and territories are committed to zero emissions by 2050. So uh, uh, the one holdout, uh, I, I think, uh, cannot hold out much longer. Ross, just as someone else hopefully comes forward, a, a quick comment. One thing you taught me in the, um, in the update, when people often ask you, was this similar on the response to climate change to trade policy, you used to point out so clearly to them that unilateral action on trade policy brought great return, but the global response was so essential to the response to climate change. Interestingly, in this re response to the pandemic, it hasn't been the case that uh, responses have been globally coordinated. It's been, in some cases, very much the self-interest and then the different choices that countries took. I'm hopeful in the vaccination stage of the pandemic we will see unfold a very much um, a global cooperative approach because that will be crucial to the countries you spoke about, uh, the poorer countries, um, in the future management of the pandemic, of course. So the, our capacity to build global institutions to come together at key points remains absolutely essential, even in this crisis. Even though Australia could act in its own interest, in its long-term interest, it must act in a globally coordinated way. Yep. I can see a young man going down. Thank you. Sorry for the long walk. Um, just wondering, you've alluded to in your talk so far about how the economic reforms of the 80s and 90s kind of left some people behind, so some of the blue-collar industry people in Australia and around the world. And we've seen how that's kind of um, contributed to a political crisis that was going on before COVID with the crisis of legitimacy in government, in government and belief in democracy, being able to do things for people. I'm just wondering, do you think the reforms that you've alluded to in your book and today will help bring those people back into the fold and kind of give people more faith in democracy and like make them believe that government can actually do something for them. Yes, I, I don't think that we can uh, equate the Australian experience with that of uh, the UK and the US during the reform period. I, I think the, uh, uh, and I think that's, uh, I, I think the, the the point that you made about. Uh, 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 liberalising reforms, market-oriented reforms uh, in the 80s, uh, 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 exacerbating inequality and increasing tension and undermining faith in democracy. I think you can say that about the US and the U and the UK, uh, where uh, uh, there was n no emphasis on uh, uh, equity in outcomes. In fact, rather the reverse, very deliberately the reverse in both cases. Uh, under Margaret Thatcher and uh, Ronald Reagan. That was very different to the framework of Australian reform, which was uh, successful within a, a social democratic framework, uh, 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 one of the very first actions of the uh, reform government elected in 83 was uh, uh, the establishment of, of Medicare. Uh, think of what we'd be like today if, we, if that hadn't been done. And that was a huge step forward in, in equity. The, the Obama administration used uh, more political capital on, on, on trying to introduce a Medicare type arrangement than, uh, than on anything else, and yet, yet it only made, had partial success. 
uh, and uh, the absence of uh, a, a universal system uh, was a very big disadvantage in dealing uh, w with the pandemic. It was during those years, the reform years, that we introduced um, uh, uh, general family payments that uh, had a huge effect on uh, income distribution. And uh, the, the people who were damaged by whose job employment and uh, uh, and uh, incomes were damaged by reform uh, uh, re, 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 with, with a focus of a number of uh, structural adjustment programs. The steel workers of Newcastle and Wollongong, uh, textile workers in uh, si provincial cities, in uh, uh, especially in Victoria and New South Wales, so, uh, were, were the recipients of uh, uh, special programs of retraining. So I, I don't think that uh, what uh, the points you make uh, are valid about the Australian reforms of the 80s. They, they are valid about the US and the UK. And as a result, our democracy is doing better today uh, than the democracies of the US uh, of UK. And I, th I think that uh, the difference in experience really makes the point about the importance of equity uh, when you're implementing a reform program. Thank you, Ross. I think this will be our last question and, and then I think um, Helen will give a vote of thanks. Thank you. Well, I, I'm just wondering about the huge debt that um, the Australian government's got into with uh, paying uh, so many people to be out of work, which was necessary, um, and also the problems with uh, education for kids, um, missing out on education and really the long-term effects that... Um, the whole COVID thing has had that we don't know about yet. I'm wondering how you foresee that in the future. Oh, and loss of liberty through police, increased police powers and things like that. <laughs> I do worry about loss of liberty, but this isn't the only influence uh, restricting traditional Australian liberties uh, in modern times. But uh, on the, uh, the, the other issues, I. I say that um, uh, one of the reasons I, I say that we we uh, 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 shouldn't want to return to the dog days because economic performance 2013 to 19 was poor, uh, but we couldn't even if we wanted to. And one of the reasons is we'll have to manage a trillion dollar debt. Uh, we'll uh, we'll have to uh, uh, manage a number of other consequences uh, when, when you have a period of uh, higher. Uh, uh, unemployment, you disrupt employment, then there is some degradation of skills, especially of young people who can't go immediately into work using uh, th those skills. And as you mentioned, there, there may be long-term uh, uh, cognitive and other uh, impacts uh, from COVID itself, although mercifully we'll have much less of that than uh, countries uh, else in other parts uh, of the world. But for all of those reasons, uh, 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 all of those reasons are reasons why uh, uh, life will be harder if we, in the 20s, if we return to all of the policies we had in the 10s. Uh, uh, the dog days uh, were pretty poor for the living standards of ordinary Australians, uh, but uh, similar policies would generate even worse outcomes. And that becomes a reason uh, to uh, face up to reality and uh, to... Uh, think and work really hard on uh, on better policies and better outcomes. Well, thank you, Ross. Um, Professor Sullivan, I believe, is going to give a vote of thanks. Uh, 
Uh, well, so Ross, it's um, it's always a luxury listening to, to Ross. Um, he's, he's one of the nearest things I think we, we have to a, a polymath, and um, you know he he can come at a question from uh, you know the economic perspective. He'll you know he's learned over time to to really take seriously politics in a way that uh, I have sometimes suggested he he maybe hasn't in the past, um, and I think this. Um, this, his latest book is, is a real testament to his capacity to think big in a way that too often, I think, as, as both educators but also policymakers, um, we, we run the risk of not doing. Uh, the, the focus on the short term that I think um, you've alluded to very well, Ross, uh, is something that, that, that has really hampered um, both the education, uh, particularly, but not just in, in economics, but also the way in which we are constrained uh, to do our, our public policy work. Um, what I think is wonderful about this conversation, and, and again, you, you alluded to it early on, Ross, is that um, not only do we have an extraordinary thinker who can give us great ideas, but also practical application, um, but it, with, with Stephen here, we also have something that I think we cannot take for granted, which is the representation of a, of a very robust and healthy public service. Um, you know, one of the things underlying the capacity uh, for experts to, to have the influence that they had in, in the pandemic um, is because of the public sector capacity that existed in those countries. Some countries chose, like mine, the UK, to use it very badly. Um, Australia uh, has fared much better. So. It seems to me, I, I came to Australia 10 years ago and Ross was one of the first people I met in Melbourne and I was very excited about being in this place that had, you know, was still in the, the, the days of, of prosperity and, and Ross put me straight very quickly about <laughs> what was to come and, uh, and that turned into uh, the book Dog Days. Um, I just want to pick up on a, on a couple of themes before closing because I think they, they are really important. The first is this question of, of what happens to trust in experts as we go into this next phase. Ross has challenged us with some great ideas about how we might do things differently. Um, now, how long will trust in experts last? Will, will both politicians and the public decide that maybe we're less keen on expertise in what passes for normal times? Or will we, as Ros is indicating, perhaps have made the move to, to actually getting back to understanding that, that expertise is very important in how we think both about the short term but also about the long term? Stephen's point, I think, about what happens in the, in the global context is vitally important. I'm, I'm perhaps not as optimistic as you are, Stephen, about um, vaccine nationalism. I think we're, we're still uh, to see uh, what, will, what will happen there. But there's no question, as Ross's analysis shows us, that unless we have a truly global response, um, the pandemic is going to be with us for much longer than it, than it needs to be. So... Uh, in closing, I think what, what Ross has done is he has reminded us um, that we need to learn from the past, but we mustn't be constrained by the past, because to be constrained by the past leads us into repeating the mistakes over and over again. I would like to have heard much more from Ross about how he thinks vested interests are going to situate themselves in the, in the coming period, and indeed um, what it is that... Um, politics might look like um, in, a, in, a, in a, a world where 
there is still too much temptation for, for populists to take hold. Um, but I'd just like to leave with the words of Giroux, who I think um, sums up perfectly what, what Ross has given us in this book. He says that to act differently, we need to imagine differently. And I think Ross has given us some first steps and some really powerful tools uh, to act in that imagining differently and hopefully to act differently. So thank you so much, Ross and Stephen, for your conversation. And I'm sure that people are very keen, if they haven't already bought your book, uh, to buy it and, uh, and certainly to get you sign it. Um, so thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.